You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to the 42 cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I'm your host, Nathan, and we have another great episode lined up for you where we're doing interviews again. Yes, I am going back to interviewing people. I've actually got quite a few interviews lined up for the next few months. And this one in particular is quite a treat because I am actually interviewing a scientist. Which is kind of cool, because I thought that when I did do interviews, it would be someone on the writing or acting side, or even maybe a director or producer, someone along those lines. I never thought that I would be interviewing true, actual scientists. So that is really cool. Look forward to that coming up. Otherwise, I'm still stuck in lockdown. Still have a job, at least, so that's good. But, you know, not a whole lot going on here. Definitely still working on the podcast, hopefully getting that release schedule, you know, up so that, you know, you're getting the new content, you're getting all the backlogged episodes that I have, you know, sitting around, but uh, definitely want to prioritize getting the interviews back. They're a part of the podcast that I really missed, and I think that this one was a really good interview because... You know, we just seem to be on the same page on a lot of things as far as, like, she would already set up the next question before I even asked it without even knowing what I was going to ask and stuff like that. So that made it, you know, a really easy interview, but also just because it was nice to talk to a scientist, but also someone who was into geeky things. And so it was an easy way for us to sort of, like, talk and understand each other. And, you know, hopefully I have enough of a lay knowledge of science to, you know, have been able to ask you know, at least decent uh, questions without being, uh, without making it over the heads of people. And since she kind of specializes in, you know, making science explainable to people who are fans of geeky stuff, I think that that also helps. So that's Dr. Erin, and you will hear her after the break. So without further ado, let us pause for a moment for a promo from another fine podcast. Hey everyone, this is Carrie the Metal Geek, and I would like to invite you to hang out with myself and my fellow Metal Geeks as we have all kinds of discussions about heavy metal, films and TV shows, video games, theme parks, comic books, and whatever else is tickling our geeks. Please visit our website at MetalGeeksPodcast.com and follow us on all the social medias including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Metal Geeks. We are also proud members of ESO Network, so you can check everything out at esonetwork.com. Keep it metal, keep it geeky, stay safe, and see you on the next episode.
And we're back. And like I talked about at the top of the show, uh, we are here today with uh, Dr. Aaron McDonald from the Dr. Aaron Explains the Universe YouTube series and from various other places you may know her, but we'll get into that in a little bit. So welcome to the 42 cast, Dr. Aaron. Hi, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, though, this is really cool because we met through someone that we have in common, uh, my friend Juliet, who one day just spontaneously told me, hey, do you want some people to interview? <laughs> so I was like, uh, sure, because I've done, I've done some interviews before. And uh, so, yeah, and she was just like, oh, yeah, I, I know the scientist and, you know, she works on Star Trek stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds really cool. So, yeah, it's, it's good to have you on. Thank you. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> right. So let's just jump into the interview then. And so how did you get interested in science? That's a great question. Everyone kind of has their own journey. And mm -hmm. for me, it's through the entertainment industry, honestly, because I was a little redheaded girl who was growing up when there was a redheaded woman scientist fighting aliens on TV every week <laughs> on the mm -hmm. X-Files. And Dana Scully was everything and anything I ever wanted to be. I worshipped that woman. I owned a pantsuit when I was like eight. <laughs> I, <laughs> I had a terrible cut haircut that I should, that can only be carried off by Gillian Anderson. And um, I, but er, she was amazing and she was a scientist and i think most kids growing up are super into like space and dinosaurs you know those things are objectively awesome and i was into that as well but then kind of having dana scully kept me going where i saw myself in her i wanted to be her i wanted everything to do with her <laughs> and uh they had this this is so weird but they had this throwaway comment like in one x-files episode that she had done her undergraduate degree in physics and mm. in, in astrophysics and i was like oh that's a thing <laughs> and, i mean if i want to be dana scully that means that i have to get a degree in like space physics <laughs> mm. that's what i want to do and that just kind of planted the bug and then you know around the same time contact had come out and dr ellie arroway was also awesome and i just was really driven by these fictional characters who I idolized kind of made inspired me to become a scientist and took me down that path. Yeah, it's probably my problem because, you know, I, I was very fascinated by time travelers and so far that that study, you know, we don't <laughs> have so that sorry. degree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> still, I am, though, still waiting for the job of space archaeologist because I'm uh, pretty sure that's one of the coolest jobs out there and that doesn't right. exist yet. Yes. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> so, okay, yeah, the, my next question is going to be why astrophysics, but you already answered that one. <laughs> well, and I think, too, like, it, it just, it was amazing to me that because of that space and dinosaur obsession that so many kids have, you don't really put two and two together. It's like you have this life when you're a kid and there are things that you're interested in, and then you have, like, jobs and what adults do, and when you ask kids what they want to grow up to be, you know, you get things like ballerina, astronaut, or, you know, there'll be very specific answers that turn out to be exactly what their parents do. And it's really, it, it's hard to convey that there's this transition period where if you want to, if you want to go to college and study one thing that you love, 
you can do that. And that's when kind of that world opened up to me, realizing that I could literally go to college and just study space. And I wasn't even concerned about like what my job would be after. I probably should have been more concerned with what my job would be after that. But, but that, that was just what, what was so appealing to me. Very cool. You know, one of the things that I hear a lot when I talk with people, you know, I remember hearing it, you know, years ago when I was a younger person, it's always the question of why worry about space and why worry about this kind of science? Let's care more about like science at home, you know, stuff that can benefit us right now. So why is astrophysics important? You know, that's, I'm glad you asked that. And I do get asked that a lot. And even, you know, I would get in like, very close to being drunk in bar fights in college <laughs> with fellow physicists who, who were like, why are you getting money? And I'm not, you know, why are, why is your research department? This was in grad school. You know, mm -hmm. why did your research group get money and mine didn't? Um, but, you know, for me, there's, there's multiple answers to that. One is kind of more fundamental to just the psychology of humanity. And that's that space is like this great unifier. It's the one thing that we all really truly share is that we are all humans here on planet Earth. And, um, and when we look up, we're reminded of that. And so this studying space and it, it psychologically brings the world together and it, continues to inspire and also offer a safe, happy escape, I think, for a lot of people. A lot of people who go into amateur astronomy, you know, do so because they find looking at the stars very calming. It's not that that's what they want their field to be or their job or anything like that. They just love looking at the stars. And, and I think so many people uh, can relate to that. Even if they don't own a telescope, you still can't help but get chills at watching like a rocket launch or seeing beautiful pictures from Hubble. So there's this, there's this more philosophical idea of space being a great unifier. But then from a practical aspect, space is hard and dark and scary. <laughs> and and uh, to conquer it, not in a, you know, post-apocalyptic sci-fi <laughs> invade the world's way, but right. in a pursuit to really truly understand it and start exploring it it presents many challenges to us technical challenges that we wouldn't have otherwise if we were just staying here on earth um my particular field was in gravitational waves is what i did my phd in mm -hmm. and trying when i was doing it we hadn't detected gravitational waves i left about just under a year before the collaboration made their Nobel Prize winning detection mm. <laughs> of gravitational waves, which is fine. I'm happy with my life decision. <laughs> but the, you know, when Einstein predicted gravitational waves, he literally said, like, they're there, but no one will detect them because they're way too small to be detected. And scientists were just like, you know what? Challenge accepted. <laughs> and dug in and through trying to detect these ripples in space-time from colliding black holes, had to do crazy research into material sciences, into suspensions, into, you know, cryogenics, and all of these things that would not have necessarily been pushed as hard otherwise that now have applications to other fields. So mm -hmm. this idea of space not only being a great unifier, but also a great challenge is what helps advance our society from a more practical aspect. 
Yeah, it was one of the things that even taking space on its own, you know, when people were like, well, you know, we've already been to the moon, we should just go to Mars. But I kept going, well, you know, (laughs) the moon's kind of a worse, you know, environment. Maybe you should test things a little bit closer to home where, you know, in a worse environment before you go all the way to Mars, where it's going to be really hard to reach people if there's a problem, you know. Right, before the, like, conversation delay time is two minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. So, and we might have already covered this one, but what is the most important thing about your field that you don't think that the public is aware of, but they should be? Well, that, okay, so if we transition then into, like, what I'm doing now, because I left academia, and I don't do research anymore, um, but I work as a consultant for sci-fi writers, mm-hmm. and it's a weird field. It's a weird job to have, because... Again, being obsessed with the entertainment industry and like trying to choose between going to film school and getting a degree in astrophysics and <laughs> the people who were paying for my college degree kind of had a say in that. <laughs> um, but I'm very happy to be working in the entertainment industry now. But as a science consultant, sometimes it's hard to get work because writers have had negative experiences with science consultants in the past who mm-hmm. don't necessarily... Um, understand the creative writing process as well. What helps me is that I'm a sci-fi fan and I'm a fan and I'm starting to get more experience actually on the writing side of things. But what people don't realize about being a science consultant is it's not about saying yes or no or just trying to make things correct. It's It's more about trying to know when to not explain something versus trying to explain it and getting yourself into trouble. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm much more often recommending not to science it than I am to trying to figure out how to science it, I think is something that a lot of people don't necessarily think about as much when we talk about science fiction. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that, the choice between film school and, uh, and, and going <laughs> into science, because no, because it's one of those things, you know, like people, I'm an engineer. And so, you know, people always think it's weird that I'm as into liberal arts as I am. But I'm like, no, I mean, it's like, if I had followed my heart, I would be a writer right now. Or, you know, I'd be in drama, you know, like, those are the two things I, you know, I absolutely love. But it's like, but I like to eat, you know, (laughs) like to have a job, you know, paying good money. So, you know, it's like, so I went with something that, you know, I have interest in and that I can be good at and, you know, has a steady career kind of thing. It, you know, there is something to that. I think when I was, um, I was teaching at community college and didn't, and couldn't pay my bills because mm. adjunct professorship sucks. And, um, so I was like, well, I couldn't pay my bills. So I became an aerospace engineer. <laughs> it's like, I just thankfully was in a position that I had the background to be able to do that. So thanks Sorry. mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, you kind of already, t- it's, it's funny because like the way your thoughts are going are kind of like going along with the way my questions are going. That's awesome. So, you know, you were talking about the writing side and you were talking about the creative side and, you know, and science and whatnot. You know, there are certain scientists, not to necessarily name a particular one, but, you know, he's one of the people that, you know, says Pluto isn't a planet, um, who seem to take pleasure in... <laughs> You know, like every time there's like a popular science fiction movie being like, oh, it's so awful because they got this thing wrong or that thing wrong or whatever. Like, you know, what do you think about like, do you think that's fair? Uh, Does, you know, having the background in science, does it ruin your enjoyment to watch, you know, science fiction? So for me, um, first of all, (laughs) 
with the I do I agree on everything that you said there and every characterization except for the fact that it's okay that Pluto's not a planet I know people are very attached to it but that's just science we learned more and we found that there's a Kuiper belt that has a lot of objects and Pluto's just one of them and it will be okay I promise I promise it'll be okay um it is still cool it's still worth studying but aside from that um I do for me I don't find it productive to just rag on stuff that gets things wrong because, and especially now I, I appreciate the creative process much more when you're trying to decide how to tell a story and um, which I'll come back to in a second. But mm -hmm. for me, I use science fiction as it's kind of cheesy, but I use it as a teaching moment mm. that it's like, even if it is wrong, no matter why they chose to do that, let's just say, okay, well, what's wrong about it? Like, let's learn the physics of, of what it would be if we had tried to get the physics totally right with that. Um, but, but with the whole creative process side of it, you know, one of the most famous errors in The Martian, which is notoriously like a really good scientific sci-fi mm -hmm. film, is the fact that the air pressure on Mars isn't high enough to actually blow over a satellite. And I'm not spoiling anything because that's like the first five minutes of the movie. Sure. Um, but, you know, to, to blow over a satellite and strand Mark Watney on the surface, the air pressure would never do that. We do get dust storms that make it hard to see, but you would never actually feel wind pushing against you because the air pressure is not high enough. But Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, very specifically said, he's like, I knew that. I did know that, but I chose to make that be the inciting incident because I didn't want the accident that stranded Mark Watney there to be the fault of the crew or yeah. of NASA. He wanted it to be like an environmental factor. And so that's like a perfect example of recognizing where the story is more important than the science. And also, look, I just taught you about air pressure on Mars. So, right. <laughs> you know, without just saying, oh, this is wrong, this is dumb, this is ridiculous. It's like, okay, well, well why is it wrong? And, and what would be correct about it? And, uh, and give the writers a little bit more credit for why they make the decisions they do. That said, I, there is some entertaining stuff out there. <laughs> but, but as a sci-fi fan, I just, it, I don't necessarily, I am blessed with the ability to actually switch on and off my sci-fi fan brain. Although sometimes it gets more and more difficult when like there are things that are so fundamental mm -hmm. that when they do get them wrong, I do get ragey and I get very upset. <laughs> I had that moment when I watched the new Voltron on Netflix oh, Okay, be because I was enjoying it just as a fan and I enjoy mm -hmm. cartoons and, and it was really, it's a really great series and the science was so good in it. The way they talked about space time and wormholes and faster than light travel and like anytime they did try to science something, they did it incredibly well. Not only that, they had a line of dialogue that was like two words off of the title of my PhD thesis. So <laughs> I was obsessed with the science in this show. Uh -huh. And then they threw out one thing that is like, they called the solar system the Milky Way galaxy. Ah, uh. I remember that. Oh, I cried. I'm not even going to lie. Like, I was, my stomach just fell to the floor. I was like, no. Well, what was so weird about that is that's like, you know, that's the kind of thing that like when I watch like 60s movies and stuff, you hear. Right? But like, there's nothing like, like that's so far out. Like, like that detail that, you yeah. know, the solar system and the galaxy are not interchangeable, you know, is, 
it is something that everyone has known and has been part of general knowledge for a long time. And so that really surprised me that they got something that wrong. I know. And I was like, you were able to actually talk about gravitational waves from colliding neutron stars <laughs> and you mixed up the Milky Way and the solar system. And like, science, that's something that science fiction does screw up a lot. You know, you get this idea of like the verse versus the star system versus like, oh, these aliens came from another galaxy. Well, they more likely came from another star system. So mm -hmm. science fiction does screw that up a lot. And that usually ends up being the thing I correct the most. But because the rest of it was so good, I was just that it hurt twice as much. <laughs> no, I hear you on that one. I actually really love Voltron, too. Um, so but, good. Yes. <laughs> Who's your favorite paladin? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, you're going to make me choose. Um, I mean, I... They're also Pidge. I can't not say Pidge. I mean, because she's mm. just a science nerd. Mm. Um, but if like of anyone on the show, Karen's like hardcore my favorite. Oh, He's amazing. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Great. No, my, my daughter. So my daughter is huge into Voltron, and and she's a huge Keith fan girl. Oh my god, my my partner's kids are are also into Voltron, and they are so obsessed with uh, with Keith. <laughs> I love it. I it's it's brilliant. It reminds yeah. me of being that age. But but mine's all sharpshooter himself, Lance. Oh uh, yeah, you can't go wrong. Yeah, I appreciate through these through these kiddos the uh, Keith Lance hardcore shipping too. Oh. So <laughs> we've had that discussion many times. <laughs> I'm sorry, we've strayed way away from No, it's fine, but no, see, I, I don't want this to be, like, hugely formal anyway, <laughs> since you're into sci-fi and I'm into sci-fi, you know, so it's awesome. fine. We can, we can go a little off book. It's funny to me, because uh, this particular question about science and knowledge and how that can, like, get in the way of enjoying a story is so different for different people. Yeah. I'll hold up Pacific Rim if you've seen that movie oh, as yeah. an example. Oh, yeah. Because like for me, the thing like I had issues with was like the huge gearbox, which was like the most inefficient thing in the world <laughs> of, you know, oh, we'll just have the people in there doing the movements and have this big gearbox connected to their legs that then like actually moves the legs of the robot. And I'm just like, this is insane. Why wouldn't you have some sort of like if you if you wanted the pilot to move and the robot to mimic it why wouldn't you have some sort of like virtual tele you know presence thing that right. just detected movement but but it's interesting because a friend of mine his wife is a uh, psychologist and her issue was with their whole like the left brain right brain thing oh, of why yeah. you needed to which to me that didn't matter that was okay that's just sci-fi you know you know like whatever but that didn't bother me and so i just find that interesting that yeah. Like what pushes people's buttons and, you know, how that, you know, whole thing, you know, So works. that's so funny you mentioned Pacific Rim because um, you talk about what people love and what they don't about it. For me, I found out because I, I kind of discovered it a bit later and then I was on a panel talking about the science of Pacific Rim when Pacific Rim 2 came out with some of the people who had worked on it. And they mentioned that they specifically animated intake valves in the feet of the um, of the uh, things, Jaegers. Jaegers, yeah. To be a cooling system for the nuclear power core that they're using, <laughs> and that's why they stand in the ocean. And that, and like, and then I looked, and you can actually see that. And they never actually go into that detail in the movie itself. But mm. I like 
I love that. (laughs) You know, those, it's all those little things, but you're so right. There's just the occasional thing. And for me, it's like, I'm better. I think I'm better if it's like far in the future, because you can give more grace to that or like Mm -hmm. a different galaxy or a different something. Um, Stuff that is near future is, I'm going to have a little bit more of my science hat on. And then also, as we were talking about stuff where they get so much right that when you do get one thing blatantly wrong, then it stands out just as a viewer, you know, because I've been into it because the science is so good. Mm-hmm. And then that one sort of error pulls me out of it. Whereas like if all of it had been just like hot sci-fi nonsense, <laughs> like, <laughs> I would, I'm just along for the ride at that point, you know? Well, yeah, it's the difference between like your Star Treks and your Star Wars, right? Star Wars Absolutely. is a fantasy series that uses sci-fi, you know, as a, as a backdrop, but it's not, you know, that's not Absolutely. the purpose is to teach science, but Star Trek tries to ground itself more in science and emphasize more of the science in the science fiction. Anyway. Exactly. And like the fandom kind of represents that as well. I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of both. We basically have like a Star Trek wall and a Star Wars wall in our house. <laughs> Are you allowed to do that? I, you know, it's funny. Cause like for me, it's actually counting the number of tattoos I have for each fandom. And currently Star Trek is winning. So okay. um, sorry about that. <laughs> But, but you do, like, I can go and I have been giving talks about science and Star Trek and the fans really love that. Mm-hmm. And when I've, I have tried to headcanon a lot of science in Star Wars that is never explained, but we can try to pick some stuff apart. Mm-hmm. And it's just that the fans are enjoy it, but not you know, I'm not getting tons of people coming up talking about how they became a scientist because of Star Wars. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is probably the the easiest way to distill it. Whereas tons of people became scientists because of Star Trek and Mm -hmm. the way they approach technology. No, it's just funny because recently I had someone on that said like, yeah, yes, you can be a fan of both. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) but you might start a rumble if you say that out loud. (laughs) You kind of do. I mean, I do get side eye from a lot of people, but it's fine. (laughs) It is possible. I'll be a true rebel. I'm a Babylon 5 fan. (laughs) Ooh, deep cut. I like it. I like it. So does it bother you when fiction treats science as a monolithic discipline where one person can be an expert in (laughs) science quote unquote and it's all of it (laughs) call the scientists (laughs) yeah i for me it's like uh, what i really love is when they have people where it's like they don't necessarily explicitly say that where Mm. you know they'll have like a doctor like a medical doctor or I, for some reason, I don't, I don't know if I'm getting this reference right, but what's flashing in my head is the, um, the earthquake movie with the rock, <laughs> mm. which was awesome, by the way, but then it was like the geologists, but I think at some point they had like a geologist hacking into a computer system right. <laughs> and, you know, so it's like these interchangeable skills that, so me as a theoretical astrophysicist do have a surprising amount of coding skills because we model everything that we do. So there are some crossover things like that, but I definitely would not be able to hack into like the CDC. Like I'm not a hacker. (laughs) I can code some Python that would make actual coders throw up in their mouths, but you know, I, I would not be able to type code hack at, 180 words a minute (laughs) as as some people do um but it is funny i the the thing that gets me the most is like that just for some reason 
and I'm drawn to it because I'm an astrophysicist, but they put astrophysicists in lab coats a lot more than we actually wear <laughs> lab coats. <laughs> really, only people who work on satellites are going to be seen in, you know. <laughs> yeah, but that comes back to what you're talking about with filmmaking, right? You yeah. know, like, you want to give a visual cue as to what the person's job is, you know. Right. So I can sort of get that. Which is so funny, actually, because that, that transitions to that representation thing, you know, that we talk about a lot, which is if they want to have a scientist on there and give that visual cue and make it accessible for the audience, then they're going to go with like a Bill Nye, the science guy look. And mm -hmm. so, but those stories that portray scientists as not wearing lab coats and who, you know, rock out in red hair and pantsuits, um, <laughs> they, that goes such a long way. And, and it's still a transition because Scully, you know, she was a challenge to, I think, how a lot of people viewed scientists, but she still had the glasses, the lab coat, you know, she did get into science mode a lot. And we're thankfully now kind of transitioning into the, just this more generic thing where it was like, what I loved was in Black Panther, you know, Shuri being this like whiz kid engineer science geek. They never sort of like she was just such a natural and that has to do with the writing and the acting. But it wasn't a thing, you know, that it was like we have to drive home that she's a scientist. It was just like, no, she's just a science inventor, awesome person. And by doing more of that, then it's like that science scientist trope of the perfect you know person that does everything uh can kind of be softened a little bit and that's that's exciting yeah i mean it gets to one of the things that i often you know um talk about which is there was a time when you know scientists could be you know more than just the geeky person in the glasses and the lab coat or whatever you like you watch some 60s sci-fi movies and it's like it's more of the renaissance man mentality right the scientist right. is a young attractive person who's uh, somewhat athletic you know and and can do you know the action type stuff too and it's like but for some reason society kind of transitioned out of that too scientists are like weak geek type characters yeah. and now we're now we're kind of starting to see the comeback of you know not only a scientist is more diverse you know uh, either by gender or racially or whatever but also you know scientists are starting to become action hero type roles in certain cases again and so you know I right do. or in my case could like be covered in tattoos and listen to rage metal mm -hmm. <laughs> you know like <laughs> it is possible to to do all this but that's interesting that you mentioned that sort of swing from the 60s um because that is true but also the those science professors that we visualize now were cool and athletic back in the 60s. So maybe that has something to do with it too. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, how you got into science and everything, but how did you get a role as a science advisor? Uh, is it just with Star Trek or are you advising on other series too? Or, you know, how did that all happen? Yeah, I'm not exclusive to Star Trek, but um, that's certainly most of my job right now. And, uh, and, it's so my role is as like the franchise science consultant. So because they have so many shows that are in production right now at various stages, they wanted to have a science consultant as a resource to the writers rooms just for them to use should they want, you know, so I'm not, they're not necessarily not everyone is using me like I didn't work on season one of Picard, for example, at all. 
Um, but if they wanted to call me up for season two, then I would be available to them. Um, but I have been working on some of the shows and for me, it's been a long journey. It's been a long journey. It's not something I think that like, it's not a job that people apply to, (laughs) you know, it's as with a lot of entertainment industry jobs, it's, um, through a lot of, you know, understanding the industry, meeting a lot of people, becoming known as someone who who's good and a positive influence in a writer's room. Um, but, you know, I had been associated with Star Trek before the consulting side as more of a fan-facing uh, association because I started giving talks about 10 years ago. Actually, at Dragon Con was where I got my start, which is how I know our mutual friend. And um, for those people who don't know, Dragon Con has like multiple, they have like over 50 tracks that are programmed through the whole weekend. Like tens of thousands, it's a stupid amount of programming. <laughs> uh, but they have pure a four day science. weekend, no less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like 96 hours. <laughs> it's insane. Um, but they have pure science and like pure space, especially the space track are very much purely science talks and so that's kind of how I got into that was I was going to Dragon Con as a fan and then I applied and I started giving science talks for the space track talking about gravitational wave research and gamma ray bursts neutron stars but me being me I started kind of going into like you know reaching out to like the video game track and the Star Trek track and all of those and coming up with talks to give there and I got put on like a science of mass effect panel with another friend of mine That was actually like how we met, but um, realizing the power of teaching science through popular culture was something that was really attractive to me, especially as I was starting to transition out of academia and I love teaching. I found my teaching outlet in going to these conventions and giving talks about the science behind different sci-fi stories or just science fiction in general, like how faster than light travel work could work or uh, how artificial gravity could work. And, uh, and then I had a, a science of Star Trek talk and I started giving con- talks at conventions all around the country. And then once I moved out here to LA and started to meet people, I got invited to give a science of Star- a physics of Star Trek talk at their official Star Trek convention in Vegas. Um, which was hilarious because it was like the most stressed out I've ever been about a convention before. <laughs> Even though I was a Star Trek fan, I'd never gone to like a fandom focused convention. And I was mm. having stress dreams for weeks leading up to Star Trek Las Vegas <laughs> about like getting called out for not knowing one reference in one episode. It never <laughs> happened. Star Trek fans are lovely people. But from that, I, you know, and I got invited back for a couple years in a row and I did, I got invited to give a talk on the official Star Trek cruise and I've done that for two years in a row now. And uh, so the, the franchise, as the franchise is in this new phase, was wanting to utilize that passion for science that the fans have. And so not just having that fan facing, but also having a resource behind the scenes to inject some cool science into the stories is kind of my my role on both sides of the house. Sorry, that was a really long answer, but it's been a long journey. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, I expected that you were going to tell quite a bit, you know, <laughs> to get from, you know, this is how I got into science and, you know, here's my life now. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it has been a crazy weird journey. Um, and it's still... It, and I think too, the entertainment industry is is a funny one, and it's it's 
I love it. I love it. I love living in LA. I can understand why people don't love it, but I love it because it's just, it's a hot mess of humanity and people, you know, you can never, first of all, a lot of people work on projects that they can, they're not allowed to talk about what they're working on. And then a lot of people too, you know, stuff falls through at the last minute. And so it's not, people have this image of being in the entertainment industry and being in Hollywood is like this constant grind of rejection. And that does happen, but it's not the rejection that you have to battle through. It's the getting within two inches of the great job and then it falling through and that repeatedly happening. And so, you know, getting into a role on Star Trek, into a job on Star Trek, it's that same sort of like, I can't get excited about it. I can't talk about it. I can't, I can't you know, fully commit my brain to this being a thing <laughs> until it's public, it's real, there's a paycheck, <laughs> there's a job, like this is a thing I could talk about. And so I'm really happy to be on the other side of that now. And and it still amazes me every time I say it out loud. So it's fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I would be excited to be involved with Star Trek in any official capacity. Like, it's Star Trek. This is, people, like, my parents do not touch science fiction. My dad is that type of person that, you know, he almost got kicked out of the theater. He's a meteorologist, you know, the day after tomorrow. He had Ah. to walk out of. (laughs) 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 Um, But even they know Star Trek references. They know Star Trek. So it's just, that's that's what's exciting about that. Well, yeah, I mean, my parents, I mean, my mom especially, are by no means, like, uh, science, you know, sci-fi geeks or anything, but uh, but yeah, I mean, but they watched the original Star Trek, you know, like right. they watched it in the '60s, and my mom, like, like my mom, she's like the traditional like popular girl cheerleader type, right? <laughs> that was what she, you know, in high school, that's who she was. But even she watched Star Trek, yeah, and that's the thing that they tell me, like, and that was everybody's house. It was like this was like essential viewing that it's it didn't crazy. matter who you were. Everybody sits down, and they watch Star Trek. It's just such this cultural icon. It just blows my mind. It's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned the day after tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I made fun of that movie for so long after it came oh, out. Oh, man. I kept joking there should be a sequel the day after the day after tomorrow. This time it's really cold. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so I totally get your dad. I, awesome. I do. I do in that case. Yeah. That's um, awesome. So- <laughs> Mine for me is the core. That's my mm. equivalent. The core for me is just so, <laughs> oh, so painful to get through. And, uh, oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. So you brought up Star Trek. What is your favorite Star Trek? Oh, so my favorite captain is Janeway, but mm. my favorite series is Deep Space Nine. Oh, you chose correctly. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I am also huge, a uh, huge Deep Space Nine fan. Well, I would expect that from a Babylon 5 fan. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, Deep Space Nine may have ripped a few things off. Right, right. No, I, you know, I just... I freaking love Deep Space Nine. I, my partner, he had left for the Marines like in the middle when it was on air, when it was airing every week. And so he had never seen like beyond season three, which mm. is where it gets good. Right. <laughs> it's, I mean, it has its gems up until then, but at season four is basically once Worf joins and Cisco <laughs> grows a beard is when it's good. Right. And so we just sat down and rewatched 
for me, I rewatched all of it. And that show is so good. It's mm -hmm. oh, amazing science fiction. So well written. And I just love the atmosphere. Like I love, um, it's such an escape, you know, this going to quarks and having this like family of sort of misfit people and having that combination of not just Starfleet, but random you know, passers through is just, it's a fabulous way to tell stories and I love it. I'm glad I chose correctly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, and, and so, you know, my, my issue a lot of times talking with just general geeks and whatnot is that most people, it's like they watch Next Generation, you know, like, like most right. people alive today, that was the thing that they saw. Yeah. And everybody is like, well, you know, oh, Deep Space Nine, that was stupid. And then you talk to them a little bit. It was like, well, yeah, they watched like the first season, you know, and right. then they decided they didn't like it. And then they never watched it again. And then my counter reaction to that is, when was the last time you sat down and watched the first season of Next Gen? Right. Because let's be honest. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So my daughter is 13 and I didn't even try because I had tried with Doctor Who, which to me is my number one fandom. Awesome. And I had tried with Star Wars uh, because Star Wars was the thing. Like, I don't remember a time when I hadn't seen the original Star Wars. Right. Like, there, there was not a time in my memory. So to me, those, those are the things that as a very little kid, I was watching Doctor Who and I was watching Star Wars. So I tried her with those and she did not take to them. And I was kind of in this mode of it. I guess she's not really interested in sci-fi, that kind of stuff. So, you know, whatever. And <laughs> so you cried a little bit. Right. I cried yeah. a little bit inside, but you know, it's like, it's her choice. You know what yeah. she's going to like. I can't make, cause you know, my, <laughs> they tell you a little too much about myself. I hate Westerns to this day, but that's because my dad used to force me to watch Westerns. <laughs> right. Exactly. You want don't want to be that parent. Right? right. And I didn't want to do that to her. I've seen way more Westerns than I really <laughs> should have. And that's because I was forced to sit and watch them. So uh, one day I was just watching the original Star Trek just for me. It was on TV or something. And suddenly like she walks in the room with her iPad. Like, you know, you're sitting on the couch playing on her iPad, whatever. But then I'm noticing like the iPad, like she, she's looking up more and more and more. Wow. You know, and she's like becoming engaged with it. And so I was like, wait, do you like this? And she's like, yeah, I like this. So um, we've now watched all the original Star Trek. Wow. We've watched, we're on season seven of Next Gen right now. Awesome. But I'm altered because, you know, uh, season one of D Space Nine and season six of Next Gen were at the same time. Yes, so I've indeed. been alternating. Okay. Like discs, you know, DVD discs between the two. And so she's seen season one of Deep Space Nine. And the thing that she tells me is, because I kept telling her, like, hon, if you don't like Deep Space Nine, just, just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Right. And she, she's like, you know, season one of Deep Space Nine is better than season one of Next Generation. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but that's the thing. People weren't comparing it to season one of Next Generation, though. They were right. comparing it to season six of Next Generation. And they were saying this isn't as good. Yeah, exactly. And two, like I do because I came into Star Trek much later in my life. It wasn't until college because I wasn't raised with it at all mm. um, that I was really exposed to it. And um, I think that I can kind of understand it in the sense that Next Gen is very episodic. So you could drop in and out, right? If you missed mm -hmm. a week of Next Gen, it's a new story the next time. And stories and shows like Babylon 5 and like Deep Space Nine and some of the other sci-fi out there, 
if you miss one episode, you could be screwed. Mm -hmm. I mean, Deep Space Nine has some standalone, but then you start to miss out on the character development. But that's any episodic show. But it is so serialized that I'm sure people, it was like if they missed one or two weeks of Deep Space Nine when it was airing, they just felt like they couldn't get back into it. And I'm finding now, like I was first exposed to it, people who are able to just binge it without commercials as many episodes as they want in order are just are rediscovering deep space nine and going like oh this is a really good show yeah. <laughs> yeah that's awesome i'm excited i wonder how she's gonna like voyager yeah no i mean i'm wondering about all of that too it's it's been really interesting um i expect she's going to like the doctor yeah because so far she's been pretty consistent she likes spock she likes data she likes odo in deep space nine she likes everyone trying to be human right exactly (laughs) so i'm pretty sure she's gonna like the doctor at least that's awesome and it's funny because voyager is actually the one that if i have friends who are like hey i'm a general sci-fi fan but i've never watched star trek i Mm -hmm. don't know where to start I actually start them on Voyager simply, which is a weird choice because it's not as well known in society and it's not, I mean, it's not my favorite series, but my argument with that is that it loops you in right away because they're thrown into this Delta Quadrant. So you're like immediately invested in, are they going to get home or not? And it doesn't rely on like any knowledge of like deep seated, you know, politics between the Klingons and the Romulans and you know because they're discovering the Delta Quadrant for the first time and the viewer is too so for my friends who watched Voyager first found that they were they felt more comfortable in the Star Trek universe that they weren't missing out on something by not knowing who what Klingons actually are or like what Vulcans are they it was a bit of an easier intro to them yeah I always say Voyager has some of the best Trek and some of the worst Trek. It really does. It's so uneven. (laughs) So uneven, but it's like, it has one of my favorite Star Trek episodes of all time is like episode five of season or six of season one. It's so early on. It blows my mind that, yeah, it is some of the best. I I don't know them by episode order. What, what, which one is it? I was not expecting you to. Don't worry. It's um, it's the one where they find the wormhole that connects the Alpha Quadrant to the Delta Quadrant, and they find the Romulan on the other side. It's called mm. Eye of the Needle, mm-hmm. and they realize. Spoiler alert! <laughs> that's for a um, show that's uh, twenty five right. years old. <laughs> but it's a great twist because they this is like their first chance to get back to the Alpha Quadrant and tell them that they're stuck, that they're still alive. And, uh, but it turns out that that Romulan they're connecting with is actually like 46 years in the past or something. Mm -hmm. And so they can't disrupt the timeline. And it's just, it's such a solid episode. And for being like in the single digits in the first season of Star Trek is pretty impressive. Yeah, I I gotta say, um, time travel, because that was always like my primary like sci-fi like thing that like always fascinated me. That's the thing, though, that causes me to have the most issues when a show is not consistent about its time travel. That's funny. It's like sometimes it's a predestination paradox. Sometimes you change history. No real rhyme or reason why it's one way one time. So, (laughs) you know, 
So I did a talk. I don't know why I convinced myself that this talk would be a good idea at Star Trek Las Vegas on this on time travel in Star Trek. It wasn't even the science of time travel in Star Trek. It was just time travel in Star Trek. And my whiteboard looked like a conspiracy theorist because <laughs> I was writing down every time travel episode and every method of time travel in Star Trek <laughs> and trying to loop them all together to find some consistency. Sure. It can't be done, but no. it was fun. <laughs> yeah, my, my thing with Voyager, and, and again, this is coming from someone who's huge into time travel, the first season, they overdid it. There were like four or five different episodes just in the first season that used time travel as the MacGuffin. There you was know? a lot. Yeah. yeah. And, and I so, wouldn't give you that. Uh, but one that I really like, even though, again, it's like, again, just throwing all the time travel rules out the window and doing a different one is I think they call it Year of Hell. Oh yeah, that's a great episode. But that's because great I two-parter. always like dystopian future type uh, episodes, and you see Voyager have to go through like the worst possible, you know, stuff. And so that's I always like such that. a solid one. And well, the reason I like that one that I mentioned, the Eye of the Needle, is because Star Trek usually uses wormholes as just distance travel, mm-hmm. and this was kind of one of the rare times that they explicitly said this is a wormhole connecting two points in space, but also two points in time. Mm-hmm. And that is, like, scientifically consistent. It's not uh, <laughs> the chronotons being emitted from the warp drive, you know? <laughs> oh, the deflector dish, the yeah, Swiss Army exactly. knife of space. We can just do anything with it. We can Exactly. <laughs> We've deflected the tachyons, and now we're in Roswell. <laughs> All right, so so I have to ask you because I was put up to this because I knew I knew from reading up a little bit on you that you know you had touted Janeway as a as a favorite character and whatnot. Oh, yeah. So I have to ask you, talking about Voyager, what do you think of the Warp Ten episode? <laughs> oh, the Warp Ten episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, my my ongoing joke with this is that when I explain how warp drive works, you don't you exponentially build bubbles around your starship until you build all of space and time. And that's warp factor 10. And you don't do that because terrible episodes happen. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Oh, it's just, but it's such a classic. And because it's so iconically terrible, I've become weirdly attached to it. Well, it's hilarious because Brandon Braga, the DVD actually actually have like a little extra where he apologizes for that episode on the DVD. <laughs> it is, and this whole idea, especially because I have this my my counterpart who's done some consulting on Star Trek as well, um, Professor Muhammad Noor at Duke. He um, he's a biologist, and so we team up every time. Any time that like if I've needed help or like if a show is needed help for biology, then he gets a, he gets a phone call. Cause I'm not, I don't do squishy things. <laughs> Wait, you're a scientist. Don't you know all of it equally? <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but we love, we love ragging on that episode. And uh, there's also a fun fact that that, <clears throat> I don't know if you could probably find it online somewhere, but someone, I officially don't know who <laughs> that's my official statement submitted a paper to a predatory journal to expose a predatory journal as being one where you can pay for it to be published without any peer review, uh, wrote a paper on Threshold, disguising it as a serious scientific paper. (laughs) (laughs) The first, it's like by Paris Torres. (laughs) 
it's I think Lewis Zimmerman is the point of contact for the uh, for the article and it's about what happens to a body when they reach extreme celerity which is a fun thesaurus word for high speed mm. <laughs> so I you know threshold is what it is and Janeway does have a great line in it though when after her and Tom Paris have had lizard babies together <laughs> For those of you who haven't seen it. <laughs> and he apologizes to her and she says, well, what makes you think it was your idea? <laughs> Which is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, I mean, that one was such a weird thing because since then I've kind of learned that the writers like changed, like, you know, from thinking of warp as linear to being like a like an exponential thing, and that's why yeah. warp 10 is infinite speed and all that. But but no one ever explains that in the show that there was like an actual change. Because since the original Star Trek, there are times when they go warp 14, warp 17, and suddenly it's oh, like yeah. warp 10 is infinite speed, and I'm like, what? I mean, it's almost like, it's almost funny. It's like, it's almost become a thing that every show is a different definition of warp. Like what these warp factors are. But we have, and now that I'm, I'm not officially in charge of it, but I do have some say into how warp drive works. (laughs) Uh, If I do get asked about it, then it is, um, it is this exponential sort of, because you're building bubbles on your ship, right? That's basically what you're doing. And uh, so, yeah. (laughs) So yeah, funny, one one thing that I've always wanted them to go back to and explain is uh, in Next Gen, there's this episode where they're like, oh, actually using warp speed like like destroys the fabric of the universe. And oh, you've I stop. love that. And it's yes. like, that's so interesting. But then it's like the, Deep Space Nine completely ignores that. They're going warp nine again and everything. And I'm like, wait, what happened to the whole, like we have to restrict ourselves to like warp five or warp six, whatever they said to like keep space from tearing apart. That was such a good episode. And I love that too, because if you do think of space time as this fabric that mm. you would, if, if if people did have warp drive that they were using all this time, eventually it would basically, it'd be like an old sweater, you know, that it right. just starts to loosen up and it starts to become a little less stable. I do love that idea for sure. Yeah. So if you could ever put, you know, a bug in some writer's ear, I'd love to get like a, <laughs> like a follow up to that, you know. All right. Noted. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so you talked about Janeway. Any other favorite Trek characters? Oh, God. I mean, if we... <laughs> One of my favorite things to do when I meet people and we don't know each other very well, and we, mm-hmm. but we have a mutual love with Star Trek, is to play, like, F. Mary Kill <laughs> with our, with our uh, Star Trek characters. For me, my favorite Star Trek character, I love Janeway, but Garrick is like number one on my list. Yes. I am obsessed with Garrick. I have his <laughs> book, That Stitch in Time. If people haven't read it, I high recommend it. Basically, the actor who played Garrick wrote a book about Garrick's past that combined notes that he took during this show where it was like what Garrick would be doing during these episodes mm-hmm. and where he's like writing back to Julian Bashir, telling him his past and then like reminiscing about stuff. I just, I Garrick is, is one of my all time favorite characters. So that's like, that's why I think I'm drawn to deep space nine so much as I think that when I think about all of my favorite characters, most of them come from deep space nine. Voyager had some good ones, but I'm not exactly like itching to see what Chakotay's up to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so so I've always said like Star Trek, oh, you know, in the newer ones, not not the original, because I think the original series, what it got really well is the idea of the triumvirate of of Spock, Kirk, and McCoy. Oh my god, yeah. 
but there's this sort of first officer problem that you get in next gen and Voyager where it's like <laughs> once they, you know, it's like, it's like after a while they didn't know what to do with Riker and it's the same thing with Chakotay. It's like, you're this sort of racial stereotype, you know, character. Oh. And that's like your one thing. It's your one thing. <laughs> it's your one thing. <laughs> Poor Chakotay. Because <laughs> I, mean, I don't think it's the it's... actor's fault. And then it's like, oh, we'll just make you and Seven an item because we don't know what else to do with you. Oh and my so God. there we go. It's so funny how frequently I forget that that's what they did with <laughs> Chakotay. Because <laughs> it just didn't work. There was right. just no buildup with that. And if, the funny thing with Riker, too, is I frequently have to ask myself if it's like, if I like Riker or I like Jonathan Frakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I'm often in that trap of just like, I love Riker, but do I just really love Jonathan Freaks? <laughs> and, but he's, at least I think he's got more charisma than Chakotay. And him, yes. and him and Deanna Troy did actually have chemistry together, yes. which is good. Oh. Yeah, I mean, Frakes is brought up, and I think that he's spot on with that, that creating a character, like, if you want a series to be static like they did back then and not have people coming and going all the time, you know, yeah. Yar was different because Denise Crosby wanted out, so they had to do that, but, you know, they wanted a static show, but then you build in one of the character's things as he wants to be, like, the youngest captain ever, but it's like, but then right. you restrict him from doing that thing, and suddenly he no longer, after the second season, he no longer has a purpose because that was his thing, is I I'm an up-and-comer, and I want to be a captain. Right. Which I think is so funny, though, when you think about Deep Space Nine, because Bashir was so close to being that character. Mm-hmm. Like, they really did not know what to do with Julian Bashir, other than making him be, like, this whiz kid doc, you know? Mm-hmm. And because uh, any interaction he had with Jadzia was uncomfortable to the max. I had <laughs> forgotten how bad it was, but watching with my daughter Ooh. now, because she, she hates him. Like, she's yeah. fine with everyone else on the show. She hates Bashir right now. And I'm just like, just wait. Just I wait. <laughs> don't disagree with her. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, uh, but I think that once they found um, the relationship between Bashir and O'Brien, mm. that opened up. And then Bashir and Garrick. Oh, and Bashir and Garrick. And those are even sooner than O'Brien. You know, right. I think when they realize that they can have that Bashir had really good chemistry with some of these actors, they were able to grow his character through his like bromances as opposed to <laughs> making him be slightly predatory. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> looking for some act because every i mean every star trek also has the character who just ends up you know sleeping with a lot of alien creatures and uh we have Riker and and harry kim got all the diseases (laughs) and um and i think that's like that's kind of where they were going with bashir but once they once they tapped the bromance aspect like they that they had something i mean those i'm so deeply attached to bashir and o'brien as a you know, um, whenever the two of them are together, I'm always excited. The Arman Bashir episode, though, oh. I think is the best. Oh. As, as someone who's also a Bond, so I'm also a Bond fan. And yes. so having that as this pastiche, you know, oh kind of almost, almost parody of Bond, but not quite. They're taking it more seriously than that. And then having like Garrick's like view of being oh. like, is this what you think spies do? <laughs> that's what made that so good yes so good oh (laughs) such a good episode man so yeah moving beyond star trek so why did you start the uh dr aaron explains the universe series 
Yeah, I started that because I was giving these talks at conventions and I started to get more and more requests. And I love doing conventions. I love teaching. I love being in front of a crowd. I love being on stage, all of those things. Um, but I had so many people who wanted to share it with their kids. They were like, God, I wish my, you know, I wish my niece had seen this or, you know, I want to show my uncle this episode or this, uh, this talk. Where is it? Do you have, have you written a book? Do you have this stuff anywhere? And that's kind of what the impetus for starting this Dr. Aaron Explains the Universe was to just put some of this stuff online for people, this science behind science fiction. And uh, I had kind of a big switch over in my life. You know, I got divorced. I moved out to LA and, and that was a great outlet for me to start getting this stuff online. And then um, I was working as an aerospace engineer. And so that kind of, um, again, <laughs> and uh, that kind of took over because it, it was a pretty high demand job. So I wasn't able to maintain that page as much, but I was glad that I got most of my stuff up um, for people to still go and see. And then, you know, recently I was in a position where I was able to um, step away from that aerospace job and focus on consulting. And so I've resurrected the Dr. Aaron Explains the Universe. And I have Dr. Aaron's Astrometrics Lab, <laughs> which is the, the social engagement side of it. But now where I'm hosting, you know, we, we discuss episodes. We have an episode or really episodes and movies club where we'll talk about science behind specific episodes or movies. Um, I do like an astronomy class once a week. And, uh, and then I do like just Star Trek brunch on Sundays, which is like what we're talking now, you know, where I just go, nothing science-based just as Star Trek fans talking about different episodes that I do with a, a, occasionally with a friend of mine uh, who's watching Star Trek for the first time, which is fun. That is fun, yes. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's great. You know, there's always this dialogue back and forth online about the Dr. Aaron, like, Dr. Phil or Dr. <laughs> Oz. And, and if I, do I really want to be looped in with that, <laughs> with that sort of moniker? And um, for me though, when I was wanting to, when I was starting to do this, I was talking to a friend of mine who does a lot of online content and does a lot of streaming and has been involved in the esports industry. And he's a really close friend of mine. And he was just like, you know, I'm just going to be honest with you. He's like, there's a lot of nonsense online. <laughs> and, and, you have to drive home that you have a PhD in astrophysics. He's like, to, you do not look like a scientist. Going back to our what scientists look like, you don't look like a scientist and you want to really just reinforce that you know what you're talking about in this crazy world of tons of content. Because this is, I mean, really, I was, when I started that, I was known at maybe a couple conventions. I hadn't even done Star Trek Las Vegas. I hadn't done any of these things. And so it was great advice. And then it stuck, you know, people love it. It's Dr. Aaron this and, and I've grown to love it. And um, yeah, it's become, it's become more of a personality for me, which I love <laughs> and I'm excited about. Well, you know, I mean, I guess in my opinion, not that it matters much is when you, when, when people take a name like that, it makes it a little less formal, right? Yeah, for sure. And I, yeah, exactly. And I'm not, and I'm also not, it's not Dr. McDonald, right? That, that, that would be a different environment than Dr. Aaron. <laughs> yeah. So you're trying to make science for the masses. You're not trying to make science for academic, you know, like for, for academics because right. they know this stuff already. Right. Which also is a hard transition to make too, because my ideal demographic, I, you know, the people I like to be accessible to everyone. It doesn't matter what, 
background you have. I want my stuff to at least be interesting for you. Mm -hmm. um, but really the people I'm talking to and started giving my content is my uncle Mike, uh, who's no longer with us, but he was that guy who was like, he did a lot of drugs in the 60s. <laughs> he <laughs> never had it. He had not much of an education. Um, but he loved, he was just fascinated by science fiction and science and would subscribe to like, you know, nature and science magazine and, and read this stuff just cause he found it cool and was always asking me to explain it. And there's so many people like that out there who don't have the background, but who genuinely love it and also love the pop culture side of it. And so being able to use the pop culture to, um, to teach that type of person is i just i'm very passionate about that no that's really cool because uh, i have a friend who's she she's uh like a, a phd in literature and we talk about this and she talks about academia and how she hates academia just because of the fact that they've forgotten that you know their role is supposed to be to teach people <laughs> and a lot of academia is just you know the academics trying to impress other academics basically yeah and and she she's kind of jaded on that whole side of things and, you know, uh, so, yeah, I think that that's a really cool, you know, tack to take of the, you know, explain to people who want to learn. Like one show that I really love and have since I was a kid, it's still on, is called Nova. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's always something new. It's a different topic, like, you know, every time. And, you know, it's a cool way to, you know, just kind of watch them. But you're taking it even further by, you know, merging in pop culture. You right. know, and making it even more accessible for people that it's like, hey, this thing you like, did you ever wonder how this would work? Yeah, or like being able to explain why it doesn't work. And I think that that's, that's what's so hard that a lot of scientists who try to communicate with the public have a hard time because you don't have a reference point for people for some of this really hard science. And a lot of people came into science and were kind of had a, a proclivity towards it because they were really good at math. And especially in astrophysics, math dictates a lot of the stuff that we understand and how we are able to explain it to ourselves and to have it in our minds is just those equations. And so it's hard for people to teach others who don't have that math background because we only know it in, in equation land. Um, but I've been lucky enough to be able to kind of step away from it. One, because I struggled with math the entire time and I love it and I have a huge passion for it, but it never came naturally to me. And, um, and then being a sci-fi fan that it's just like, no, this is that exoplanet that we're talking about. That's like Luke Skywalker's planet in Tatooine. And then, <laughs> you know, I said that to a class once when I was teaching astronomy 101 and the whole class perked up. That's kind of where I realized the power of having this conversation was because um, then they started asking things like, well, would it be a desert planet? Would there be creatures on it? Would there be this? And even though we were talking about Star Wars, we they were asking the types of questions that you want a science class to be trained to ask, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> they were asking those inquisitive, thoughtful questions, um, even though it was about Star Wars, which is fine. Because you're trying to train people to ask questions that way. Right, right. <laughs> Star Wars, which doesn't care about science, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. We did, I will say this, yeah, because I know we've been going on for a while, but um, but the uh, there is a great, another professor, that Eric Spano, the one I mentioned earlier that I gave the Science of Mass Effect talk with, him and I did a Science of Star Wars together, and he was trying to explain how you have giant creatures on a desert planet with very little foliage. <laughs> <laughs> because Star Wars. And yeah, they're he, transplants. 
<laughs> well, oh, it's better. It's even better than that because he was like, well, but whales, which are giant mammals, eat krill. And then he found that there's a subspecies of krill that lives in the desert. Oh. Boom. <laughs> Science. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like you said before, like if you get very far away from here or different different times, the 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 explanations of plausibility that you can come up with start like propagating out, right? Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> you know, things work differently there. They have different kinds of things, so, you know. Yeah. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> right. Well, one of the coolest things that uh, I ever had a professor do is he took a science textbook from like nineteen around nineteen. I can't remember. It was like nineteen oh something. And he read us some paragraphs from it. And it was really, no, I appreciated it just because to show like how far we've come in a hundred years from some of the things they thought back. I mean, he was talking about the luminous ether, right? Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) So, so, you know, and, and then like, it's kind of conceited of us to say like, well, we here in, you know, 2020, we know all the answers of the universe. Yeah. Because people in 2120 will be looking back at us and going like, oh man, they were dumb. They're <laughs> like, nah, idiots. They believed in <laughs> dark matter? <laughs> you yeah, know I mean? exactly, exactly. Oh man, I love it. So, all right, we talked about, you've talked about Star Wars, you've talked about X-Files. What are your other primary fandoms? Mass Effect, for sure. Video game. The video game series Mass Effect, I'm a huge nerd. I just re- I just restarted playing that, mm-hmm. um, and I stream it on my Twitch. <laughs> so if anyone wants to come watch me play Mass Effect on Mondays, uh, you're more than welcome. And yeah, Mass Effect's probably my biggest one. Um, Star Trek, Star Wars, X-Files. Those, uh, honestly, it's like I don't super get into the really obscure stuff because the things I love have so much content to them already. I did, you know, obviously being in the science fiction world i've got exposed to other things i do love doctor who that that kind of got me through college and grad school that i'm i do have a big attachment um i I dropped off watching it in the last few years but i do have a lot of fond memories of doctor who um i am getting a sleeve a tattoo sleeve of all my favorite starships um the recent one i got was the galaxy quest ship (laughs) (laughs) Galaxy Quest is my number one favorite movie of all time. I will never be convinced otherwise that there's a better movie out there. It it is amazing. Like, it's so good because if you like Star Trek or you don't like Star Trek, it's an equally good movie for for different reasons. Exactly. (laughs) And it's like, it's an ode to Star Trek fans, like you said, without needing to be a Star Trek fan. It has Alan Rickman and Sigourney Weaver in it. (laughs) Yes. By Grapthaw's hammer. Oh, that's the one I will quote until I die. I could quote. Once I start going on Galaxy Quest quotes, I will go all night. So I'm apologizing ahead of time to my partner for this one. (laughs) So I I grew up watching the original Trek in syndication, you know, because I remember a time before Next Gen when original series was in syndication. And so to me, just like the stuff, like when he's doing the roles and stuff like Kirk would do. And it's just like, why? You know? I just love all of that. Where he's like, oh, I see you managed to lose your shirt. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Dia started. This is... <laughs> all right. So, all right. This wasn't one of my written questions, but I have to ask now that I know that you like Galaxy Quest. Are, are you watching the Orville? I am. Yes. It took me a while to get into it because the first episode was not 100% my jam. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. Um, but if uh, I do love it. 
and it is i will say i i don't think that there needs to be a divide there's so many people who are like you know f the new star trek i love the orville the orville's true trek uh-huh they uh, there's no need for that because they're both fulfilling different stories and um <laughs> i mean there are some orville episodes that are direct plots from star trek yes like I've seen this episode direct level, but that's okay. <laughs> and look, there's a bunch of Star Trek actors working on this show too. <laughs> right. Which is also brilliant. And so, um, you know, I think it's, it's definitely an homage to Star Trek and in the best way they have had some, I think like most sci-fi comedy manages to do, which I love. They've played with science in a way that, they they recognize how goofy they can get with it and how they can play with the techno babble in a funny way and make it hilarious. Um, I will say the some ones I have laughed so hard that I thought I was going to be sick because I could not stop laughing. It was one where they were playing the they were playing their video games and he got stuck in the corner. <laughs> I could not stop laughing. So it is the Orville, I, I will say, is a fantastic show. Yeah. Well, the cool thing about the Orville is, yeah, even though it's slightly comedic, it's not as much as I thought it would be coming from yeah. Seth MacFarlane. And they've tackled like real societal issues. They've, you know, done some, you know, varying degrees of science, you yeah. know, stuff on there. I mean, there's been some interesting stuff like the 2D universe, you know, done in a oh, different yeah, way than like that. Star Trek, you know, Star Trek also played with 2D life forms and stuff, but it was, you know, different enough uh, between how they tackled it and stuff like that. So I, I like how they've, they've sort of uh, threaded the needle, I guess, is the way yeah, I would say it. No, that's, yeah, that makes sense. And, and you're right. It does have some more serious themes than you would expect from that show. Um, but they do also allow themselves some really good comedy. Um, there was, they, cause they had that one with the aging too, where they had the banana that they had like that bubble where things aged really fast in it. Um, and then that's so another good one was that social one where like they had the good citizen, bad citizen. I've clearly only watched the season once. This is why I rewatch things. Cause I like, I have vague memories of it. Um, and it's been off the air for a while. So I need to go back and rewatch it. The, the second season is, is pretty strong also. I will say uh, I'm glad I didn't give away. So because there's a twist midway through the season that I'm glad I didn't say if you haven't seen that. Oh no, I've seen it. I'm all caught up oh, with it for oh, sure. Oh, oh, I thought you said you'd only seen the first season. I'm, I'm no, sorry, no, I just you. haven't watched it recently, so oh, I don't have them. Okay. And I've only watched it once, so I oh, haven't. Okay. I don't have it memorized. I was, I did stop watching it for a little while when they, when that other actress left the, um, because I was really attached to her character. So I was really sad that she was leaving. And, and they sent her off in like her best episode. You know? I know. I was I was really upset. I did have to stop watching it for a little while because I was like viscerally angry <laughs> that, yeah. that she left the show. Um, but I recovered and uh, and it it was good. So no, I think that I think it's a it's a great show. Another great sci fi show that just came out was um, Avenue Five. Okay, I haven't seen that one. It's written by the same, by Armando Iannucci, who I love. He's from Glasgow. He wrote Veep. Um, as, so he's a comedy writer. And it's okay. a comedy. It's a pure comedy. It stars Hugh Laurie. But it's about a cruise ship in space. And I keep getting people asking me questions about it because there's some weird, hilarious science in it. It's just dumb, but it's so funny. It's so funny. Have you ever read the Hitchhiker's books? 
Oh, the yeah. Guide to the oh, Galaxy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hence the name of my podcast. But I was about in- to say. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Douglas Adams, I think, is the king of the comedy sci-fi yes. and playing with concepts and using real silent science to create weird concepts and, and make it really funny. Oh, I the improbability drive is like one of my go-to explanations for people. I love it. Yeah. No, I've 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 always thought and I just love the concept of, you know, you build a computer to come up with the ultimate answer and it just tells you 42 and that's it's it. No explanation. So <laughs> no, I, no, you wanted the you wanted the answer to the universe. That's it's 42. That's it. <laughs> I love it. So good. So do you uh like any genres other than sci-fi? Yeah, you know, I, for me, I'm a big sitcom comedy person. Uh, little known fact about me is I'm deeply obsessed with Frasier. I know every, <laughs> I can quote every Frasier episode that's ever existed. I'm listening. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> such, I, it's just my happy place. It's just, it's like everyone has that show that for them is like, if you're homesick, it's like a comfort blanket that you're uh-huh. hanging out with your friends. That for me, Frasier is that show. Um, and then... I, you know, I do love my gothic romance, like my period romances. They're, Jane Eyre is probably my favorite book of all time. And okay. I will, I, my heart melts with a good withering stare. <laughs> <laughs> I am a sucker. I am a sucker for that stuff. I've always loved, I always have loved like classic literature just because, um, what amazes me with it is how relatable it is. We we think mm-hmm. of these classical periods and generations past that, you know, we think of people like that as being others. And when you read novels that were written in that period, those really good ones, you're just, it could be written today, you know, that you realize that how these core emotions that we experience as humanity carry on through society, through different iterations of society. I just, I love, love, love. I like that you say that because my favorite book of all time is A Tale of Two Cities. Nice. (laughs) It is is a solid book. It's Mm. not the happiest. No, no, it's not. (laughs) But it's also not the saddest. (laughs) No, it isn't. (laughs) Uh, you know, one thing that I do appreciate, you know, like I say, my dad was not, you know, a big sci-fi fan. And if I had been left to my own devices other than for school, I probably would have read nothing but sci-fi and fantasy. Right. But he kind of forced me to read a wide variety of books. And, you know, like one of the books he made me read when I was a kid was Pride and Prejudice. Nice. And he was just like, you know, you need to read, you know, like different kinds of things and be exposed to different kinds of things. So, you know, I do appreciate that in hindsight. Like I say, don't appreciate the Westerns, but I do appreciate right. the variety, like being told to branch out more and, you know, get a wider world view. And I wish more people read Pride and Prejudice not under the duress of like a high school class because no one right. actually read the books that they had to read in high school. <laughs> They'll say that they read them, but they didn't. Um, but Pride and Prejudice is legitimately a funny book. It is a great, hilarious book. It is way more centered on like the idiocy of society than it is on the romance of Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy. Um, I will say though, Mr. Darcy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, good times. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, do you read like do you 
are you a big reader or is it something where you've just, you know, read some books in the past? Or? You know, I dropped, I dropped out of reading a lot when I was in college and grad school just because yeah, I just couldn't. Um, but now I'm getting back into it. And especially too, now that I've left the, the aerospace job, just because I was emotionally drained, you know, there was a lot of stuff. I did just want to turn my brain off at the end of the day. Um, but now I'm able, I have sort of the mental bandwidth to read a little bit again. And um, so I'm getting into, I have, you know, like a book list that's about a hundred long because people are always recommending things to me. Uh, one book I did read in grad school that was kind of one that I picked up that was fairly obscure, and I think sci-fi fans know him, um, but Alistair Reynolds' uh, Pushing Ice was kind of a sci-fi book that always stuck with me. It's very much an expanse feel of like near future space mining in our solar system. And he's a British writer, and I went to uh, grad school in the UK. And so I had a lot of friends who were big fans of him. So I like recommending him to people. But then I'm also going through a big list now. I just finished reading uh, N.K. Jemisin's fifth season, which was really good. And uh, I'm reading uh, Jade City by Fonda Lee right now. So I, I'm kind of in a dystopian sci-fi-esque vibe at the moment uh, for some reason. <laughs> Yeah, I, I used to pride myself when I this now this is when I was in high school of reading a book a week. Oh my that gosh. hasn't been the case <laughs> since I no. got out of high school. And I totally hear you on the falling out of it just because you don't have the time. I've I've tried yeah. recently to like really push, you know, taking time to read and, and get more reading. Because the problem is I never stopped buying books, even though I didn't have the time to read them. And right. I have a ridiculous, not like I may well own a hundred books that I haven't read. Like you say, you have That's a list. Funny. I probably might own a hundred books. It's, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, so yeah, no, I, I wanted to see like what, you know, what books you were, you were interested in and, and stuff like that. Just cause you know, I'm always on the lookout for more interesting books and things of that nature. Yeah, both of the ones I'm reading that I just... So N.K. Jemisin's fifth season is a trilogy, and I have the first two from the library. So I read the first one, then took a break, and I'm reading Jade City right now, and then I'm going to read the second one of hers. Um, but Jade City's really good. It's I'm really sucked into it. Um, it's a good sort of... Um, like It's got kind of an 80s action kung fu type vibe to it. It's really good. I really <laughs> highly recommend it. It sounds good. I always yeah. like some eighties action kung fu. <laughs> it's yeah, it's cool. It's it's about this like it's not just go too in the weeds, but it's basically about this like sort of alternative world that mirrors Earth, but um, where jade is actually like a magical element, and there are people who are like attuned to it, and so they have this entire um, sort of gang world infrastructure where people are kind of running through this jade trade. Some people can use it, some not. And it's just got that really kind of cool gangster action kung fu thing. It's, it's awesome. It's great. Are there any authors where, you know, it might be somebody you read before or whatever, like you will just love everything that they've written? Ooh. <laughs> Up until 2009, I would have said J.K. Rowling. Oh, okay. I've, I've since fallen out uh, with that, but Harry Potter will always be close to my heart. Harry, the seven core Harry Potter books, I will lay my life out for. I love, love them. I have so much 
passion and association with them. Um, but no, not really. I, but again, it's just because it's like, I'm rediscovering authors now for the first time, but I'm starting to get some, okay, I'm backtracking on that. I will say <laughs> Claudia Gray's books, uh, her Star Wars books are really good. Every single Claudia Gray book that I've read, I love. And if she writes, if she's writing a Star Wars book, I will get it immediately. Um, because hers are really good. And uh, yeah, when we're talking about like getting back into reading and things, because people ask me about the sci-fi, it's not so much that like, for the last couple of years, I had been reading occasionally, but I'd been reading books that were basically just part of fandoms that I was already into. You know, they weren't like these original sci-fi worlds. Uh, whereas now I'm starting to get into those, but I, I do love Star Wars books. Yeah, the tie-in, the tie-in books. No, I'm. That was all my first. Like, I read Doctor Who books. I read Star Trek books. Yeah. You know, like that was that was how my intro into reading. And I, I mean, I'm still, I've still got a ton of <laughs> Doctor yeah. Who, Star Trek, and Star Wars books to read yeah. still. So, and it's like for me, yeah. If Claudia Gray or Timothy Zahn write a book, I'm, I'm kind of there for it. Oh God, Zahn! Uh, I don't know if you were there when he was first writing them, but uh, the first trilogy that he wrote which was the new the 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 new Star Wars content you know we at the right. time a lot of people treated it like this was the sequel this was episode 7 8 9 oh yeah I remember those. That's the Mara Jade. That's the, um, all of that stuff. Oh, yeah, that yeah. was so exciting back then. Before before we knew that, oh, there's going to be like now books like forever. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> this yeah. is the end all be all. Yeah, no, I definitely remember that. All right. I've got uh, one more question for you. All right. All right. Who, I mean, I think you've already mentioned a few on this, but who do you think are the most inspirational characters in science fiction and why? Ooh. Yeah, I mean, I've touched... I've, obviously, the first ones that come to mind are Dana Scully and Catherine Janeway, for me personally. You know, everyone has their own story, and we all find characters that we relate to that end up influencing us. So I can really only speak to the ones that have played a big role in my life. The ones, it's not just Janeway and Scully, although those, those two are very powerful for me, um, but also Leia was, is huge for me. She's, she is such an inspiration. After I got divorced, I had a divorce party. <laughs> This was like a year later. I was in a much better place after. Because no. <laughs> divorce, turns out, takes a really long time. <laughs> you can get married in two days in Vegas, but it'll take you a year to get divorced after that. But that's not what I did, but yeah. Um, but I did get a tattoo of General Organa and her shadow is Princess Leia because I was so... Like, that character and her story consistently... Had, been not necessarily a mentor in the sense that I see myself in her, but she's that leader that I need. She's like that inspiration that I turn to when I need to feel comforted and also empowered. Like Princess Leia and General Organa as an evolution of a character are, are a good go-to for me. Um, and then again, I was talking recently with some friends over Zoom, because that's what we do these days. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> about how much Hermione affected us as children and uh, that those of us who loved Hermione are now all adult friends <laughs> because uh, 
she was a character in the Harry Potter series that we, for us as kids who were reading, she was like, we had characters who were adults that we liked, but she was kind of, for a lot of us, the first kid character who was in school and who was only friends with the boys and who annoyed her teachers by raising her hand too much. <laughs> and, <laughs> and she was a hero. And that, those little things just are, it's hard to say. So those are mine, like personally, I think socially, I would have to say kind of what we talked about earlier is Kirk and Spock, man. Everyone knows Kirk and Spock and whether or not, you know, science fiction, let alone Star Trek, you know, you find people who haven't seen Star Wars and they're like, I kind of know who Luke Skywalker is, but not really. I pretend I do. I get the memes. <laughs> I know <laughs> Vader's his dad, <laughs> but they don't necessarily, because he's just, it's a hero's journey. It's a core trope that we're familiar with. But the characters of Kirk and Spock and to a lesser extent McCoy, but Kirk and Spock have like infiltrated our society so much that we do, we know even if you're not a Star Trek fan, you know the essence of Kirk and you know the essence of Spock so much that um, I think that they changed our society in good ways. Yeah, I really like your choices there. Uh, I've always, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned Spock and uh, Leia because, you know, celebrity deaths happen, you know, people, you know, get upset, you know, <laughs> about celebrity deaths and whatnot, but... You know, a lot of times, because I don't know people personally or whatever, you know, celebrity deaths, I'm like, oh, that's sad. But, you know, it doesn't affect me the way that some it does some other people that I know. The two that really hit me hard are Leonard Nimoy and Carrie Fisher. Yeah. And I had never met Leonard Nimoy, and I only met Carrie Fisher briefly. But, yeah, I mean, just because of how powerful those characters were in my life. Yeah. And Spock, I've always held Spock up as being like one of those, you know, characters that say, you know, because you think, oh, well, how, you know, Vulcan, you know, how is that identifiable? But, you know, Spock was, he was the person that was struggling against his inner self, you know, a person yeah. who had aspirations, you know, about himself, but then struggled with the fact that he had feelings and things that he didn't necessarily, you know, think were, you know, were good and stuff like that. And I'm like, a lot of people can identify with that. You know, I mean, don't, don't look at the pointy ears, look at, you know, the character that they created. And so, you know, I, I've, I've always really strongly identified with Spock. Spock was one of those characters that got me, you know, liking science and, you know, wanting to yeah. be like someone who's interested in science. And Leo was such a great character just to be, I think as a boy watching Star Wars, it was also really good as a little kid to see a character that wasn't a damsel. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> she picks up that blaster rifle and she's like, get in the garbage chute, flyboy. You know, that's the best part because they're going to rescue her and then she takes charge. It's amazing. I freaking love, love it. Yeah. Oh. And I did meet her and, and the, it was at a con and the thing was she was signed. So like the con closed basically. And her line was still oh, there. I'm and sure. if she had just left or whatever, I would have, you know, been upset, disappointed, but you know, I would have gotten it, but she waited. She signed everybody's autograph. And I was towards the end of the line because I had been signed. I, you know, I'd been signing and, and, you know, going around and getting lots of autographs. And so I got in her line kind of late, but she actually took the time to say a few were, you know, like it wasn't just like next, 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 you know, That's I got, awesome. I got Stan Lee's autograph a few years ago. That's another sad 
you know, since he's yeah. passed now. But but that's what it was kind of like with Stan Lee. Like he didn't look up. He didn't. It was just they shoved the you know his the person shoved the thing under. He signed it and shoved. Yep. You know, like you just keep going. Um, but uh, but yeah, like you know, I talked with her for you know. I told her Empire Strikes Back was my favorite you know movie of all time, and she was like, "Oh, it's mine too." And you know, she <laughs> talked to me about Harrison Ford a little bit. And, you know, it was kind of like <laughs> awesome. a nice you know. <laughs> then of course there was the revelation, like you know, a few oh, weeks later, yes. and I was like, "Oh, that's why she was talking to me about Harrison." <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay, love it. <laughs> I know, and her books are so good too. Her like her personal autobiographies. Yeah, I so in. In addition to that tattoo with the General Organa and Princess Leia, I did get the quote from Carrie Fisher that says, stay afraid, but do it anyway. Mm. Um, because like, and, and like you said, losing her was so powerful in my life. Like that, that did, it was kind of an impetus for me to change my life in the way that I did, because it was just like, Carrie Fisher wouldn't put up with this. Carrie Fisher wouldn't, you know, like, I got to do it for my space mom. This is my, (laughs) I deserve better than this. And Carrie Fisher would want better for me. And she really, yeah, even just losing her just left such a hole. Um, And then Alan Rickman was my other one. The late, for me, it was Leonard Nimoy, Alan Rickman and Carrie Fisher were just devastating. Like, like you said, you didn't expect it to hit you as hard as it did. And um, yeah, it was, so I I have tattoos for each of them. (laughs) (laughs) as one does <laughs> sure yeah oh well it has been so great talking to you Aaron. thank uh, this you is a lot of fun you're welcome so is there anything you want to plug uh before we sign out here i mean i kind of plugged a little bit of my stuff already but you mm-hmm. can find my youtube channel is if you search for dr aaron explains the universe i'm online mostly on twitter at dr aaron mac d-r-e-r-i-n-m-a-c and that's the same as my Twitch channel if you ever want to hang out with me live. And uh, my website, same thing, DrAaronMack.com will take you to that. And uh, you can find my Patreon if you want to be part of our episode club, or our Astrometrics club where we do the episodes, we do the astronomy class and, and everything like that. So, um, yeah, thank you. This has been really fun. It was a ton of fun having you on. It was cool talking about science and, you know, being able to geek out. And so it's nice. It's nice to meet someone else that combines the two and be able to, you know, talk about those things. So, yeah, had a good time. Definitely. No, I'm glad. And that's it for my interview with Dr. Aaron. I had a really good time talking with her. It was great being able to geek out and talk science at the same time. So, yeah, uh, hopefully I'll be able to uh, have discussions like that uh, coming up as well. I definitely have a few interviews already in the backlog that I've recorded. The one good thing, I guess, that's coming out for the podcast because of the social distancing is that there are a lot of people with free time on their hands and they don't mind talking to me about what they do. So hopefully those will be of interest to those of you listening. And again, let me know. Are there particular people that you would like to hear me interview? Uh, Did you enjoy this interview? Are there things that you would like me to ask in future interviews that I didn't ask this time? Let me know, and there are a whole lot of ways that you can do that. One way is by sending me an email at everything at 42cast.com. You can also go to the website, 42cast.com, and leave some feedback on any of the episodes. You can go to facebook.com slash 42cast and leave a message, or you can tweet to us at at 42cast. The other uh, thing that you could do is leave us a review on Stitcher Radio or iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I guess it's called now. 
And those reviews help them prioritize how they advertise various podcasts. So yes, I would appreciate. Leave a review. It would be great. The other thing I want to inform you of is that the ESO Network has a Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash ESO Network. And you can see all the different tiers that you can purchase there. The money goes to help all the shows on the station. Um, does give you access to certain exclusive episodes, various other things. So uh, check that out. And if you've got some spare money, which I know a lot of people don't right now, but if you do, and if you'd like to help the entire ESO network, please think about contributing there. So that's the end of this episode. Join us back next week when Robert Carlyle will not be joining us. And until then, this is Nathan signing off. You have been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2020. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42 Cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.